Please open with me to Genesis chapter 47. And recall the reason why we're in Genesis today is this passage is because last time I was here, we were in the previous verses. So this is what the Lord has presented for us. Let us see what we might hear from his voice and learn by his spirit. Reading chapter 47, verses 27 to 31. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, all parts of it, and may you guide us in the way of truth this morning. May you guard my mouth from speaking that which is an error, and uh, keep your people here today on the course, that narrow course, which leads to eternal life by your grace. We do that. ask this in the sure and effective power of your work in us through the death and resurrection of our beloved Savior Jesus. Amen. During my work this past week, which is to say on the phone, customer service for Samaritan Ministries, I had occasion to speak with a lady's husband who had died just a few weeks ago. Uh, the first thought and words that came to me were, how are you? <laughs> how are you doing? Uh, she honestly and quite simply stated, I'm doing okay. I can do all things through Christ, Christ who strengthens me. And during the course of our brief conversation, I learned that it, he had been Ill, Ill for a few weeks, uh, not an extended illness and not a you know, surprise death in a car accident or something like that. So there was a brief period of preparation. Uh, they knew the end was coming, and it did. And yet she was still adjusting to him being gone. They had been married for several decades. Here in our text, uh, in these five verses that conclude chapter 47, I believe these verses serve as an introduction, really, to the next two entire chapters, which relate the very conclusion of Jacob's life. He is an old man. Uh, he faces his last days in his mortal body. And he does have a few things to take care of. And by the kindness of God, he knew both that he had the things to take care of and the time to take care of them. Uh, we don't know the exact length of this period of time, encompassing the end of chapter 47 through 48 and through 49, whether it was days or weeks. Uh, they are distinct, so there's several separate events happening here, likely not extended over a huge period of time. So we don't know the amount of time that Jacob had to prepare, but he did have some. Not everybody does. Some people do die suddenly without the opportunity to put their affairs in order. So I do pray that today, uh, this portion of chapter 47, and if, Lord willing, in future weeks, we have opportunity together to look through 48 and 49, it will be a reminder to us to be ready for death. Uh, you don't have a sermon sheet in front of you, so uh, the title I wanted to present was Live to Die. May we, in seeing how Jacob lived 
in order to be prepared to die and meet his maker, may we do the same. We must live our lives so that we are ready to die. Death reigns over our mortal bodies. We cannot get around that. But in Christ, the sting of death is removed. We will die. And with that death, by faith and through Jesus Christ's Jesus Christ work on our behalf, through that, after that death comes eternal life. So together, now briefly, let us examine the final days of Jacob's life as he prepared to die. He showed he was ready for eternity. And consider if we are similarly ready for eternity. If death is to come sooner or later, are we living now presently so that when we die, we are ready for eternity? And again, uh, I didn't even have prepared an outline to print if I could have printed it. I was going to say we're just going to walk through these five verses. I don't believe the points I'm going to make always align with the verse breaks, so I'll try to be clear on what we're covering. But keep in mind that key principle, we must live to be ready to die so that we might live forever with him. But beginning then at verse 27, read it again. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. So a few, few key points I wanna pull out here. Uh, recall, in our last time together in the earlier part of chapter 47, we learned how Joseph, Jacob's son, who had gone before them into Egypt, managed the whole nation's, that is to say the nation of Egypt's, response to that devastating famine. Uh, in the midst of this difficult time, we read, we read here that Jacob's family, that is the people of Israel, are dwelling in the land of Goshen. Previously, we've looked into what was special about Goshen, a special place that God had prepared for his people to survive this difficult time. But now let us ponder for a moment the word dwelt, indicating that they settled there. They didn't just pass through. They were there for a while. They hunkered down, so to speak, to make it their home. While they knew it wasn't their permanent home, speaking of heaven, nor was it their permanent earthly home, which is to say Canaan, they knew by way of prophetic revelation that it would be several generations before they depart. So it wise for them to dwell, to settle down, to invest in a sense. They might as well make the best of it and dwell there. Uh, God's providential care did provide for them in a whole variety of ways, not the least of which being the exact place that they were in Goshen. There where the Euphrates River, or not the Euphrates, sorry, the Nile uh, spreads out heading towards the Mediterranean Sea, well watered well provided for all their animals. And while they didn't own the land per se, right, they're still guests, this is not their land to own, and they knew it was only temporary, they did have several more significant material blessings. And they're uh, showed to us in the text here. First, they had possessions. While they didn't possess the land, they had other possessions. They weren't reduced to the utter poverty that we read about among the citizenry of Egypt who lost everything they had. I mean, the shirt off their back, the cattle out in their field, their very homes, right? Those people lost everything. But God's people, the Israelites, had possessions, likely their herds and their flocks. Uh, eventually, when the leadership of the, the country changed, recall as we learn later, the um, king arose who did not know of Joseph, didn't have that care, that relationship, that understanding that, hey, he, these are actually helpful people. They can help us along through this time. Once that had passed, 
they began to be persecuted severely, and they became slaves. So at that time, they lost their possessions in their slavery. But here at this time, uh, through the duration of Jacob's life, they did have possessions. And what a great comfort that must have been for Jacob. Uh, all the way through to the end of his life, he lived to see some measure of peace. Right? You recall uh, in the history of the kings, in the historical books, there's many times where God says, you know, after you die, then it's going to become hard, you know? And sometimes the hardness is uh, their sons all apostatizing or their eyes being plucked out and things like this. But oftentimes when God is being especially merciful, he delays that until sort of the good man passes. And uh, in a sense, I think we see that here, that much of the difficulty that the Israelites faced didn't happen until after Jacob died. So during his life, he had the comfort of knowing that they were well provided for. They were living in a pleasant land, and they had the possessions that were prospering. What a great comfort to see that up ahead of his dying days. A second uh, material blessing mentioned here in verse 27 is that they grew and multiplied exceedingly. I mean, for Jacob, of all people, following the line of the patriarchs who knew the promise that had come to his forefathers to have an offspring as numerous as the sand on the seashore, that would be a great comfort, to be the man in whose life this started to actually happen, not just through the abundance of the number, the head count around his uh, dining table, so to speak, the number of sons that he had, but the generations coming from them. That's the growth and the exceeding multiplication that came from his family during this time. That, too, would have bought brought great encouragement. Um, I know we all have friends who, and family uh, who've lacked offspring at all due to infertility or have lost children from miscarriage or even infant mortality after they're born. But evidently here, God extended his hand of blessing. And those very real, very painful afflictions as a result of the fall were lessened so that the birth rate was incredible, that the generations exceedingly multiplied. That, let us not take for granted, is a blessing straight from God's hand. Uh, as an aside, and I don't want to get too far off on this rabbit trail because I referred to it in a previous sermon, but just want to, in passing note here, isn't it interesting, so something to ponder later, isn't it interesting that it's in the midst of the difficulty, it's in the midst of this exile in Egypt that God brings these blessings, right? And we can ponder that too. We are a bit exiled in our own country. Uh, we're certainly not in... Uh, carrying the culture in a godly way. We don't have that opportunity presently. Things seem to be on a downslide. Uh, so there are some similarities with Joseph's position. And, but here, it's in the midst of that exile that God brings these blessings. May it be similar for us. So that's in summary, verse 27, three key things. Jacob and his family were blessed with a good place to dwell, with material possessions, and with exceeding multiplication. And that all sort of sets the framework for Jacob's death. Verse 28 similarly takes a step back and gives us the big picture of Jacob's life as it's leading to death. And remember, that's just what, how I want to present this, is Jacob lived in order to be ready to die. And that is referred to here also in verse 28. We learn a few things. First, Jacob was reunited with Joseph for the same length of time that they shared together before they were separated in Joseph's youth. Recall that Joseph was 17 years old when he was sold down to Egypt. And here we 
see in the text, reading again for us, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. So Jacob, coming down from Canaan to survive the famine, being reunited with his son who he thought was dead, gets to spend 17 years in Egypt with his beloved son, Joseph. He had all that middle time separated, 17 years at the beginning, 17 years at the end. So God kindly provided that symmetry. Second, it's obvious, but just to emphasize it, Jacob ended his long life still in exile. Even though the famine had ended, probably uh, with 12 years more to go in his life, because when they moved down, there were five years of famine still remaining, they didn't return back home after the famine was over. You might think and wonder why didn't they? I don't believe we're given a succinct reason other than the fact that God had predicted they won't. Right? He had told them well beforehand that they were going to spend hundreds of years total in exile from possessing uh, the, uh, the promised land. And a big chunk of that was their time in Egypt. And so it was just understood, well, we're, it's not the time to go back. Right? We have faith and confidence that God's promise is true. Eventually we will, but it's not for us. It's for our children's children after us. And so that is to say that Jacob ended his life still in exile. The famine did end, but yet their exile didn't. They did not immediately return to the promised land. It was God's will for Jacob to live and die, finish his life and to die in Egypt. It was God's will that his descendants would multiply, that they would groan under the future and the perspective here of chapter 47, the future harsh servitude, that a deliverer would be raised up someday to lead them to freedom. It was God's will that yet in the future they would be tested in the wilderness and on and on. That still had yet to happen. Here, Jacob died in exile. Uh, there'll be more to say on this later, but suffice it to say for now that Jacob left Canaan knowing he would not return not in the same mortal body. And he didn't. He did not come back to look over the same hills, to see his flocks grazing in the same land that he knew God had given to him and his uh, uh, progeny to come after him. So even though the famine ended, even though he knew it was his land eventually, he did not get to return and see it. Jacob died after 17 years in Egypt. And then we're helpfully given the math to show that the 130 years when he arrived, plus the 17 that he stayed there, gives us the summary of his age at death, 147. But verse 29 and then the beginning of verse 30 give us some detail on more of how Jacob is wisely preparing to die. Again, how does he end his life in order to prepare for death? Let me read that portion for you. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. Let's leave it there. So we're going to zero in now on this final portion it's uh, continued in 48 and 49, but this little bit of how it is that Jacob faithfully, a man of faith, acting in faith, how he prepares for his own death. The text says that the time drew near that Israel must die. 
The word must uh, isn't, strictly speaking, in the Hebrew text. It's added there to explain the tense of the verb to die. Uh, the force of the grammar is that time marched on with a purpose. His life proceeded with a purpose. Could also be translated that Jacob lived in order to die. So time moved on for the end result that Jacob would die. Uh, it's like water flowing down your roof to the eaves, right? What is its destiny? If you have gutters, it's going to go in the gutter. That's just how it works. Water flows downhill on the roof, into the gutter, down the downspout. There's no way to avoid that. There's no you know, jumping over the gutter. We cannot avoid death. It is appointed once for man to die, and then comes judgment. This is a quote from Hebrews 9. And in Romans 5, I think it was referred to in one of our prayers earlier, death spread to all men because all sinned. This is the way of the world. We cannot get around these things. The Lord gave Jacob, yes, a very long life, 147 years total. Remember that when he arrived in Egypt and visited Pharaoh, he was already a remarkably old man. So much so that Pharaoh commented on that. That was sort of the focus of their conversation is, how old are you? You are very old. But then he got yet another 17 years. Most I didn't do the math. A lot of the people in this room aren't even 17 years old. Your whole life is less than this extra portion that God gave to Jacob. And that was added on top of an already extraordinarily long life in our experience, 130 years. Nobody today lives to 130, I don't think. And nobody certainly lives to 147. But friends, whether you live to 60 or 80 or 107 or 147 years, we are all appointed to die. We all sin and suffer under the penalty for sin, which is death. Ignoring this fact is foolish. It's folly. Acknowledging this fact and living your life in light of it is wise. And that's what we're called to. So what did Jacob do to finish his life wisely in light of this incontrovertible truth? How did he display godly wisdom from a long life? He called his son Joseph. Why Joseph? Uh, not because he was the oldest, nor because he was the specific heir who was going to, by God's providential and uh, divine destiny, carry on the bloodline of promise. Likely it was because Joseph was the one in a position of responsibility who had the authority and therefore the ability to carry out Jacob's wishes. If you're looking for someone to do a favor, make sure you ask them the right, or you ask the right person. Uh, if you need hay bales stacked, you don't ask Sherry, right? You ask Mary, I guess. We learned this week. Thus, Jacob appealed to Joseph because Joseph could make it happen. He was the man who could do the thing that needed to be done, which was to secure his eventual exit from Egypt. Joseph, as vice-regent of Egypt, was in a position to make Jacob's desires a reality. So that's why Jacob appealed to Joseph. Uh, the remainder of the verse relates uh, three things I want to divide it into. First, the plea which prefaces the vow. Second, the cultural custom that constituted the form of the vow. And third, the substance of the vow. So first, the plea. Jacob said, if I have found favor in your sight, and then at the end he bookends that with kindly, sorry, deal kindly and truly with me. 
That first part, if I have found favor in your sight, is a bit of an idiomatic expression. Jacob was not saying, maybe I'm out of favor, maybe I'm in favor. If I am, please do this. That was not what he was conveying. Uh, if you look at the various other instances of the phrase, especially in Genesis, so also from the pen of Moses, you will see that it occurs when one person is under the governing authority of another and implores an action on their behalf. It's not a hypothetical if, uh, what, what I might term a causal if, sort of because of this, then please do this. Jacob was not questioning Joseph's love for him. Jacob understood that Joseph was in charge. Jacob acknowledged that he by himself was totally unable to make this happen, right? He was not in a position to get his own dead body moved back up to Canaan. Jacob had to appeal to Joseph who was in that position of authority and who could make it happen, or at least had the connections to the one, that is Pharaoh, who had the final say in order to make it happen. So Jacob is saying, please, please, do what is kind and right and true. So there in the second part of it, what I termed the bookend of his plea, he appeals to Joseph's honor, which was a wise thing because Joseph was a very honorable man. Then came what I termed the form of the vow, what we could see you know, outwardly. Uh, the form of baptism is to pour water. The form of this vow was to place the hand under the thigh. Uh, this is not the first reference to that uh, cultural custom. Uh, earlier in chapter 24, it also appeared when Abraham commissioned his servant to faithfully seek out a godly wife for Isaac. Uh, it was the formal rite wherein the commitment is made to do that which is promised. Uh, likely it derived from the idea that our seat of power, right, the focus of our being is in our loins, which is to say our lower torso connected to the thigh. I remember when I was a youth uh, learning basketball specifically, I think it was a summer camp was my vague, vague memory, but this would apply to all ball sports. I was taught to watch the hips, right? People can do all sorts of things to trick you with their hands, even their shoulders, uh, their feet to distract you, but watch the hips, right? A guy is not gonna go where his hips aren't. This is true in soccer, ask Trevor, I think it's true in football. And so, with this form of the vow, where is the focus of Jacob's will? And so, uh, Joseph is being drawn into that, right? Jacob is not going to go somewhere else extraneous. And so, he is bringing Joseph into that same center of his will. And lastly, we read the substance of the vow. Quoting again, please do not bury me in Egypt. Continues in verse 30, but let me die with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. Try to picture the scene. Uh, in order for Joseph to have his hand under his thigh, he would have had to be quite close, right? If Jacob was lying down, they might have been uh, a few feet further away because of uh, Jacob you know, lying back. But if Jacob was sitting up, to have somebody place their hand under your thigh, I mean, you're, you're inches, your face is apart. If not, the length of an arm like mine is only a few feet. So this was an intense and focused moment. Likely their eyes met. Jacob's aged voice would have intoned, please do not bury me in Egypt. The crux of Jacob's request 
was that he wanted to be buried with his forefathers. His grandfather Abraham had bought the cave in the field of Machpelah, a small piece of land. I mean, they owned, had been given right to the whole area, right? But they, Abraham only ever actually owned that small piece. To be buried there was be to, to be connected to the promises made to Abraham and to Isaac. And for Jacob, wanting to be buried there, he was saying, those are my people. Their God is my God. Their promises are mine too. That is where my hope lies. So that was the substance of Jacob's plea. Well, moving on to the remainder of verse 30, and this fourth point also continues into verse 31. Jacob answers, I'm sorry, Joseph answers, and he said, I will do as you have said. Then he, which is Jacob, said, swear to me, and he, which is Joseph, swore to him. Have you, I wonder if, how many people here have ever had anyone near death implore you with a direct plea? I have. It is very powerful. <laughs> I mean, it's an important moment, right? What words does somebody choose when given the grace of being coherent as they approach death? What words do they choose to say? And you're listening, right? Especially for an honorable man like Joseph, the trial of having apart, been apart from his family for those years, having been drawn back, having been entrusted by God to provide for his whole family through this famine. Joseph was listening. He was attentive to this plea. He listened. And uh, I might add, for any of us, and certainly it was Joseph's case, when he had the opportunity or the ability to do what the person requests, all the more you're listening and are excited to do it for them. So again, that was true in Joseph's case. He answered, I will do as you have said. Very succinct. Didn't need to give all flowery language. He was succinct. Joseph could tell that this was very important to his father. I don't think he was just giving the old man the answer he wanted to hear so he could move along. Definitely not. If there's one consistent theme in Joseph's life, it's that he was a man of integrity and honor. He did the right thing even when it was extremely difficult, whether it was reporting on his brothers and their conduct out in the fields, or refusing the madam of the palace's advances, or managing the prison, and on and on. Joseph understood that this was a solemn vow. He even cited it when he, in chapter 50, goes to Pharaoh to fulfill the request in order for Jacob's body to be taken up to Canaan. He says, because I promised to my father, please let this be. So he knew that this was a very important a solemn vow. And then finally, our fifth point, the conclusion of verse 31. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. I would categorize this concluding phrase, which remember is written by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I would categorize this part of the narrative, the description of this very real historical event as doxological praise, right? or sorry, uh, dox, praise means doxological, doxological relief. There's some measure of relief of sort of a relaxing that I uh, understand from this text. Doxological, obviously, because he is worshiping. He is praising God. Relief because he knew the details would be taken care of, right? He couldn't worry about it anymore. He didn't need to worry about it. Somebody else was, that he could trust was being, uh, going to take care of it. I might add that I understand the scene here in chapter 47 to be separate from what is referred to in Hebrews 11, 
verse 21. If you're familiar with this famous passage from the Hall of Faith, right, the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, we read, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. So some people suppose because staff and bed are very similar in Hebrew, they have the same consonants, that uh, later copyists made a mistake, Moses actually wrote staff, and so the author of Hebrews is correcting it for us. And it's just so oh, very nice, helpful, that the authors of the Septuagint did the same. Well, no, uh, I think we can trust that Moses knew that it was his bed, and in separate event, maybe it was a couple days, weeks later, he also, after having, as the text in Hebrews says, blessing each of the sons of Joseph, then he worshiped, leaning on his staff. So why do we think that uh, Jacob only worshiped once, right? And it had to be the same device in both places. We're not required to do that. So rather, after this present interaction with Joseph, then later, <clears throat> Jacob, falling ill, pronounced the prophetic blessings upon Ephraim and Manasseh, and later all of the sons, right? Which is when he worshiped leaning on his staff. All that to say, Jacob worshiped. He worshiped God more than once, worshiped God more than twice in terms of bed and staff, worshiped God a lot of times, all sorts of times. The Lord God Almighty, who brought him through many trials, through a long, difficult, but yet fruitful life, this God who built up his family exceedingly, who would have him to be buried with his fathers and who would one day raise him from the dead, he worshiped this God. It was a relief to know that he would be buried there. And with that question settled, he worshiped. Well, at this point, having covered the text in uh, not excruciating detail, but hopefully sufficient detail, uh, as I often do, I want us just to take a moment to step back and consider really two things, two things that I believe we should consider of any text when we're reading it personally, or certainly in hearing it preached, is to consider what does this teach us about the Lord? And what do we do in response to that, right? What do we see here that the Holy Spirit has recorded for us that instructs us about the God we should know and love and follow and worship? And what do we learn to do in response to that? What change of thinking? What change in actions? Uh, what repentance on past failures? What uh, plea for new grace in order to have future successes was, must we do? as a result of this incident in Jacob's life. And uh, there are a lot of options there. In terms of the character of God, we see God's faithfulness to grant him many years, to grant him the reunion with his special son, uh, to grant him the faculty of his senses to be able to talk to this son, to even make this plea. Uh, God's kind providence in so ordering the affairs of all the nations so that they're provided for in Egypt. That later Jake, Joseph can go to Pharaoh in order for this plea to come to its successful fruition. Certainly God's character in this life not being all there is. That there is a resurrection of life for the just, of everlasting punishment for the unjust. So I present to you all of those facets of God's character. In terms of life lessons for us, let us briefly focus on the fact that Jacob lived his life so as to be ready to die. At least the end of his life, I think here, provides an especially clear and copyable example. So we can be honest to admit, not all facets of Jacob's life recorded in the scriptures are worth copying, right? He made mistakes. 
He had weak spots. At times, he did not have his eye solely fixed on the prize. But God granted him mercy. He gained that focus at the end. Since we don't know the exact number of our days, let us not presume that it's way far off and I've got time to get my act together. Because it could be today, right? Traffic's dangerous out there. Some of the stoplights aren't working. People might run through it. Whole manner of other dangers. We don't know how long we have. Jacob was given the grace of knowing and could prepare for it. Let us do the same. And I want to remind us all from 2 Corinthians 6 2. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Behold, which is to say, listen. Is your ear open to hear? Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Granted, that verse is generally taken as a call to come to new life in Christ. I'm not questioning, not a thinking that even a majority of this congregation and the people gathered here today is needing new life today. But rightly so, it's for the unconverted, but there's also an element of truth for those who are already converted. First, if any among us, there could be two or 10 or 20 or more, the Lord knows, from the youngest to the oldest and everyone in between, if you do not presently know that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins, if you have not yet admitted you are a sinner, do so. Know that the sentence of death against you is just. We all deserve that. But there is life in Christ. Repent, believe, cling to Christ. He is the one worth living for. He died and rose again so that your future, who knows how far future, mortal death leads to everlasting life. But as I said, this also applies to those who already have new life in Christ. Know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. You know that the price is paid on your behalf, that he is preparing a place for you in heaven. You know that for the future, undoubtedly, we are on a good path. That though we must be reminded, inevitably, there are ways to live better for Christ in the present time. Right? Let's be humble and acknowledge that. In this current day of gospel grace, let us live humble lives. Not waiting for tomorrow to fix that comfortable sin. Uh, not waiting for somebody to catch us in that comfortable sin until we commit to reforming it. Let us not wait. And uh, I don't want to list any specific ideas that come to mind. I think the Holy Spirit is a much uh, more wise and effective convictor than I could be. So I won't uh, state anything. I'm not going to list any for you. If you listen to the Holy Spirit today, speaking through his word, bringing that conviction, he will lead you into paths of greater holiness. Just don't ignore it, right? Don't harden your heart against those promptings. And by grace, with Jacob, we can have that doxological relief. And so, friends, to conclude, <clears throat> in Christ, we are not buried in Egypt. We're not left permanently in exile. We will lie with our fathers. Indeed, we will be raised with them. Jesus has sworn that oath on our behalf. It is sure. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your precious word. Might we, in this brief time together, have had our attention drawn to things eternal and be convicted and directed in the way we should change our ways <clears throat> to be better prepared for that time. 
We thank you for this testimony to your abounding grace that you deal so kindly with those for whom Christ died. May we be counted among them. May we have the joy uh, to praise you, uh, to have that relief of knowing that you will deal with us kindly in Christ. And please, as we exit here today, may we know your love and care. May we never question that because you are the one who has sworn the oath. And Jesus, your death makes it sure. Not for us and our attempted actions, but for Jesus and his perfect works, we are sure. May it be so in Jesus' name. Amen.